My Daily Battle. We've been excited about this series uh, off the heels of Easter uh, because it gives us an opportunity to see this eternal truth, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus is alive, uh, applied in a very powerful way to everyday living. Right? We believe that. That yes, this concept and truth is revealed in the personal work of Jesus. He's alive. Amen? Amen. He's alive. And that is something that has eternal significance. And yet at the very same time, if it has that kind of significance, it's going to impact every single day that we live. It has that kind of power and that kind of glory. So what we did is we set out to see how this truth could be applied to everyday living, everyday battling, everyday struggling. And so based on a lot of our pastoral care conversations, a lot of the things that we had interacted with in the lives of people, we compiled a list of possible daily battles that people faced that made life difficult, even the Christian life difficult. And so we did what every smart, relevant person would do. We decided to go to Facebook. And so we went to Facebook and we did a little survey to basically hear a little bit more detail, get some little bit more insight into specifically which ones were the most poignant, which ones were the most pervasive struggles that people face every single day. And so what we found was is that things like anxiety cripple people, anger, right, that inside uh, this, this rage and, and frustration, this concept of regret and disappointment maybe from past choices and sins. Financial pressures weigh people down, and they fight that on a constant basis. And sexual temptation is one that is pervasive and that really pulls at people's lives and destroys them, and it's a constant battle that they face. And last, uh, depression is something that people face on an everyday basis. And that's the one that we're going to take a look at today. 10% of our respondents uh, said that that was their most intense daily battle. In a six-week series, this happens to be uh, the least of the ones that we're talking about, but nonetheless, a significant battle that people, fake, uh, uh, that people have every single day. So what we understand is this, that life is a battle for people. Everyday life can be a battle for people, and it's a battle for Christian people, right? right? Becoming a follower of Jesus isn't a, a, a get-out-of-difficulty-free card, right? So it, it, life can still be hard, and even sometimes, again, I don't want to uh, just kind of make faith look so Disney-like. Like faith itself can even make things harder uh, as we wrestle with faith and flesh and the difficulties of human experience. And I think that we can feel that. And so we recognize that life can be hard. It can be a battle. It can be a struggle, right? But here's the truth. Back to where we started with this. Back to the climax of human history. No matter how hard life gets, there's always hope. There's always hope. Because of the resurrection, the person 
the work, the eternal life that comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. And so as we face this, we're, we're diving into real human experience. And here's the deal. It's our hope that we will also provide very real hope in the midst of this series. So turn to Psalm 42, 43. Yep, both Psalms. Someone said, why are you preaching two Psalms? Like, I don't know. I just thought I'd shake it up a little bit. Uh, you know, just try something different. Uh, no, that's not what it is. Uh, it's actually, uh, some people would argue that these two psalms go together in unison. And you'll see some of the common language that is in there, a repeated phrase. Uh, so let's take a look at that, follow along with me, read with me Psalm 42, Psalm 43, verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him my salvation, and my God. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of my enemy. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your holy dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? 
Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This is God's Word. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen. What in the world is this thing we are calling depression? Well, the Mayo Clinic defines it like this. It is a mood disorder that causes a persistent feeling of sadness and loss of interest. One word definitions could be melancholy or despondency. There are millions of ways to define this. There was countless definitions all over those kind of sources. But I think a helpful way to understand what depression is, is just to simply look at the word itself. It may be the best way to describe what depression feels like, is like for someone, right? It means to de, what? Press, right? That literally there is a sense of weight that people feel. Circumstances in people's lives, mental states as they engage certain relationships, surroundings, circumstances, make people feel pressed down, right? Almost under the thumb of adversity and difficulty. It feels very heavy, a weight that people seem to not be able to handle. Depress, right? Is what it can simply be felt like and be experienced as. What kinds of depression do people experience? Well, I don't know about you, but I just made it through the winter. And, uh, you know, we all, especially in central New York, and I don't mean to make light of it, uh, experience oftentimes uh, a seasonal uh, depression, right? I, I call it in jest the season of the sweatpants, right? For whatever reason, I don't understand it. Like, that's all I can think about is how fast can I put on sweatpants and just sit on the couch? Because doing anything else is just too much to handle, right? Everything else is cold, right? Normal, like just like these, this is cold. Where are my sweatpants? Where's my blankie? Where's my coffee? Where's my couch? Where's my movie? It's like four months of that called winter, right? It's like the most simple things become so insurmountable during the winter. Like the idea of getting the mail is like, it's across the street. Am I exaggerating? Right? Shoveling is like, it's like penance. Like, I have to go out there in the wind. Right? We feel this awful sense of, like, I just can't do anything. I'm grumpy, sad, you know? So people experience that. And actually, I don't mean to make light of it because it actually does really affect people and weigh people down. And it loses people's, people lose their sense of motivation. It's a very real thing. Situational depression, right? There are certain situations in our lives that just weigh us down. And I think we know this, that if we, if we were to get out of this situation, the depression would go away, right? So... Um, 
I'll just be frank, I've faced this on a number of occasions in my life and in my ministry. Actually, my first church, the last year that I was there, uh, I called it the season of the cloud. I just felt like the whole year there was just cloud over me that I just couldn't shake. It just always felt like it was raining. And so I called it the season of the cloud. And I get really weird in, in those kind of, I start like wanting to paint. Like, like I'm going to paint like, some, I'm going to go Monet on you. And like, Doreen's like, are you okay? You know, I, but I think that there's this, it's also, I started writing poetry that was terrible, right? It was, it's, it's terrible poetry, but it was situational. I felt like there was something that I just felt deep inside of my heart and I was seeking the Lord and the situation that I was in was, was, was too much for me to bear. Probably my maturity level couldn't really handle the leadership challenges that I faced. It was altogether too much. And I'm telling you, the minute I moved and resigned, it's something like went away immediately. Right? It would rear its ugly head again someday. But it was a situational depression. And some of you may have experienced that. You may be in the midst of that right now. Some situation in your life is just heavy. It's too much. Postpartum depression. Right? Some of you women know exactly what that's about. Uh, we know some, some of you folks in our congregation have wrestled with this. It's, it's very intense and scary for families, and it's very real. They feel that kind of depression. And then there is, I think, the most severe and can be the most all-encompassing is when we move into the realm of clinical depression and psychotic depression, where much major medical oversight and, and doctors and counselors are needed to just simply survive and to make it through every single day. These are the kind of depression, uh, kind of depressions that people can feel and really experience. And I'm sure some of you, or maybe all of you, whether directly or indirectly, can put yourself in this kind of experience, right? This is very much uh, a pervasive issue in our world, right? Because who has battled this kind of depression? Well, uh, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America says that in, in 2014, 15.7 million adults ages 18 and older in the U.S. had experienced at least one major depressive episode in the last year. Guys, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. The World Health Organization says that at least 300 people globally, 300 million people globally experience depression in some way, shape, or form, right? 300 million. That's basically the U.S., give or take, right? That's, that's significant. This is significant. Depression is an intense daily battle for real people all across the world, and it's also been a very intense battle for people in human history and in contemporary society. You may not know this, but Abraham Lincoln, during his presidency, said this, I am the most miserable man living. Abraham Lincoln wrestled with depression. And some of you may go, you could just change the name and put mine up there. I'm the most miserable person living. You may feel that. It may be very real for you. Eminem, jumping in history. Uh, Eminem, <laughs> slightly. I mean, you know, it's definitely a clear connection between Lincoln and Eminem. So Eminem said this after a deep battle with depression, I've never felt so much pain in my life. It was tough for me even to get out of bed, and I had days when I couldn't walk. 
let alone write a rhyme. Michael Phelps, the most decorated U.S. Olympian of all time, really the most decorated Olympian of all time, went into the 2012 London Games uh, with no self-confidence, no self-love, and he says this, I was in the lowest place I've ever been. Honestly, I sort of at one point, I just, I felt like I didn't want to see another day. I felt like it should be over. And some of you may have read up on more of the details about how low it got for the most decorated Olympian of all time, right? Someone who at least situationally would seem to have every reason to feel happy, felt anything but that. Depression is and really was an intense battle for genuine Christians in the church. You see, it's easy for us to say, well, they don't know Jesus, so therefore that's what, but it's not that simple. It's not that, it's, right, that, that this experience is something that transforms, uh, it really transcends uh, even these kind of faith categories, that even Christians, even hero-type Christians, if there are any, are those that we look up to and say, man, they were awesome men of faith or women of faith, and we see that these people really wrestled with despondency. Martin Luther according to Charles Spurgeon, says this. He says, he was by no means of the weaker sort. We all know that about Martin Luther. You sang the greatest song ever, just saying, in our first song this morning, written by Martin Luther. Get my opinion a little bit. This is what Spurgeon says. He was by no means of the weaker sort. He was, he, his great spirit was often in the seventh heaven of exaltation. He was really happy. And as frequently on the borders of despair. Wow, right? Right? Ashbel Green, the Presbyterian minister, president of Princeton Seminary, said this, My melancholy consisted in a settled gloom of mind. It's a real eloquent way to say, maybe express how you feel. Right? Your... your um, your melancholy consists in a settled gloom of mind, accompanied with spiritual difficulties of the most distressing character. And I think the most famous, at least in recent church history, would be Charles Spurgeon himself. And he says, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child. And yet I knew not what I wept for. Wow, right? Why are you so sad? I have absolutely no idea. That's basically what Charles Spurgeon, whose encyclopedia of sermons show his rich love for God and his understanding of the truth, and yet he wrestled and fought with despair, despondency, depression, in a way that he could not even understand or explain. There was absolutely no reason for it in his mind. It was just his experience. And for so many of us, we can really identify with that kind of daily battle. Right? And look, we come to the psalmist in Psalm 42 and 43, and we see that that's exactly the place that he finds himself in. He's calling his experience uh, cast down, turmoil within him, right? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Three times that repeated phrase, that stanza, 
right? He's saying, he's questioning him. What is wrong? Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? Another version. That his experience, we don't know the why, we don't know what's going on, at least in the specifics and details. We don't know how long this has gone on, but the psalmist is really dealing with a depressed state. He's downcast. We see some of the uh, 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 symptoms of what's going on. We see that he's expressing an intense longing and emptiness of soul, right? Verse 1 and 2 as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He's thirsty. He's parched. He's empty in soul. He's longing for God. He feels a real sense of emptiness inside him. He's overwhelmed with a profound sense of sadness. Right? I think emptiness and sadness can easily describe our depressed state. Right? He's sad. My tears, verse 3, have been my food day and night. Day and night my tears have been my food. Right? Maybe he's, he's so sad that he's not even interested in eating. You been there? He's so downcast that nothing sounds appetizing. Nothing is worth the pleasure of putting in your mouth because you're so sad and the only thing that's going into your mouth is your tears day and night. He experiences profound sense of sadness. He feels far from God. Where or when shall I come and appear before God? And he's being mocked by other people. Your God is clearly absent from your life. Where is your God? On three occasions. Right? Verse 3, where is your God? Verse 10, where is your God? I guess it's only twice. Where is your God? Very observant, Mike Maisie, I'll tell you. Two, three, seven. Where is your God? He's being mocked. Your God is absent from your life. When shall I go in and appear before God? He feels that. God is not present, so it seems. In the midst of this adversity. He's confused. As he's feeling empty and sad and alone. He's confused as to why God is allowing this. How many times do you see that word why? As you observe this passage. And I think for many of us. We're in the midst of these depressed states. For whatever reason. Whatever the situation. Whatever the cause. We can easily just sit confused and frustrated. And not really understanding. Why are we going through this? Am I overstating it? Why God? Why? You're asking time and time again. Why have you forgotten me? What a powerful question. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Why have you rejected me? Verse 2 of chapter 43. He's confused. He's sad. He's alone. So he feels. He's empty in soul. This may be describing where you are right now in your walk with God. In your life experience. This could be your very battle. Every day I wake up empty. I wake up sad. I feel alone. 
even though I've got a crowd around me, I feel alone and I feel confused. The only question and words I have for God are why? Why is this happening? And you may even be feeling like or maybe actually experiencing some form of oppression in your life. Right? This, that's what he says. Look at verse 1 of 43. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. You may be a victim of injustice. Be living under the heavy hand of oppression. Crying out for the justice of God. Again, we don't know all the details here. We're not parsing every phrase and thought here. But this is the experience of the psalmist. Right? This depressed, depressed, pressed down state of living. This heaviness, this sadness, this confusion. And it may, may well uh, be descriptive of the things that you are going through and wrestling with every single day. We know that 300 million people worldwide are feeling these very things. And if you're living in this state of sadness and emptiness and feeling alone and confused and living under the heavy hand of oppression in whatever form it may come, I know that there's something inside of you that craves escape. And appropriately so, right? That if you live under this every single day, if this is your experience, you want out. Get me out of this. I can't handle this anymore. This is too much for me to bear. Because deep inside of our soul, we know that the human experience was never meant to be this. It was meant to be so much more. It was meant to be lived to the fullest, to be alive, to be joyous. And so you want to escape from this. You crave joy. And so we run to all that the world would offer us to find escape. It's interesting in the survey of the people that responded that depression was their number one daily battle. We also had a, a drop down for how do you deal with this? It's the thing you use most, you go to most. It was interesting to me. Now it's, it's true that most of the time this is where society goes and some of us need to start really thinking about this discipleship issue in our lives. We need to get honest about it. But the number one way that we cope with our most uh, powerful and intense daily struggle is through Social media and entertainment. How many of you feel better when you look at Facebook, really? Comparison is the thief of joy. Right? How many likes did they get? How many likes did we get? You know? Look, people will love me if I post how my dinner, picture of my dinner tonight. I was out with a date with Doreen Friday. Yes, I was. And we were at P.F. Chang's. Yes, we were. And uh, Doreen went healthy. She went Buddhist feast. And I went Kung Pao because that's what I do. But I'm looking across the table and these people are holding hands. And all of a sudden they're not holding hands. The, the guy is refusing to hold hands now because he has something very important to do. Take a snapshot of his food 
and put it on Facebook. And I thought, how silly. And then I went to do it myself. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but there was that knee-jerk reaction. Should I be doing this? Aren't people interested what I'm eating on Friday? I mean, I think people are really interested in that. But here's the deal. We escape into entertainment, into social media. That's the disciple issue of the day. Phones, internet, television, Netflix. Even our finances are driven to pay for things that give us that escape from real daily battles. Here's what's interesting. Of the people that responded to the way they cope with depression, not one person said they read the Bible to deal with it. not trying to make anybody feel guilty. But I find that interesting. Again, that doesn't mean they don't read the Bible. That just means their knee-jerk reaction to depression is to run to the TV first rather than to the Scriptures. And so we turn to the Scriptures and we ask the question, where's hope in the midst of depression? Where do we find hope? Well, the psalmist tells us. Okay, we're not left with just a question. We have answers. Right? Look at the first few verses. My soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, O God, for the living God. He calls God his rock, verse 9. I say to God, my rock. I say to God, the God I say a prayer to the God of my life. Right? Verse 2 of chapter 43. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. He's a rock. He's a refuge. So really, the first and foremost answer that we have to, to bring to the, to the forefront of our minds is, is there any hope? The answer is absolutely there is hope. But we have to understand that where this hope primarily is, where the source of hope and joy really is, it is in, it is in the person of God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He is my rock. He is my refuge. If I need to escape, I go to Him. That's what the psalmist says. It says nothing about social media, TV. Well, that's not fair. He didn't have TV. Well, okay. But he did have something that is much more wonderful and beautiful and amazing than all the technology that we can conjure up. He had God. And so, God is our hope. Right? We see that He is personally connected to God. That is primarily what this psalm is all about. God, 21 times in these two psalms. God. And then you look at nine times, there's the possessive relationship to God. My God, your God. The God of my life. There's an intimate relationship, connection with this God. So he's finding hope where hope is to be found in a personal relationship with God. Is that you today? If you're trying to find hope in the midst of a depressed state, apart from an intimate relationship with Almighty God, who is the source of exceeding joy, you have no hope. You have no way out. You have no refuge. You have no rock. For this is who God is and who God is alone. Look at what he says. Verse 3 and 4 of chapter 43. Send out your light, your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. You see, that's why God is our only lasting hope. 
Because he alone is the source of exceeding joy. And if, there, if there's anything that you get today, let it be that phrase. When we're battling depression, God is my lasting hope. Because he is the source of exceeding joy. Write that down. Memorize it. Read this verse time and time again. God, my exceeding joy. If there's a place and source of joy, it is God and God alone. You will never find joy in any other person or any other place if you do not find it primarily and ultimately in the person of God. He is your hope. He is your joy. The psalmist knows that. That's why the psalm is written. That's why he's calling out to God this intimate connection that he has with him. This personal relationship. Do you have a personal relationship with God? Can you look to the God who made you and say, My God. The God of my life, my refuge, my rock. If you can say that, you have access to the fountain of life that wells up with real abiding joy. Amen? I need to speed up a little bit. We see he craves his presence. When shall I come before God? I remember the days when I proceed to the house of God. His song is with me, he says. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Speaking of the, the light and the truth, verse 3 of chapter 43. Right? He longs for the presence of God. That's where he finds joy, being in God's presence. He longs for the people of God. Somehow he's disconnected from, from the from the procession to the house of God. He's far from God. He's far from the people of God. And he remembers the days when he would actually lead people in procession to God's house to worship. Those days are, seem far from him. So he longs to be with the people of God, worshiping their God together. His justice, right, is his hope. Vindicate me. In the midst of his oppression, he craves justice. And ultimately, his truth. Send forth your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Right? So, his, he's teaching us in the midst of this depressed state that our only hope is God because he is our only source of exceeding joy. Right? That joy is found in God himself. Joy is found in his presence. Joy is found in his people. Joy is found in his justice and, and in his truth. It's all about Him. And so the question becomes, if that's true, how do we battle with those things? And I'm going to just leave you with these thoughts. and We're going to wrap it up. As you battle depression, here's the way that you can do so. First of all, you're going to battle depression by receiving and relying upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? You need to receive the gospel. Place your faith in the God of the gospel for hope. You need to see the glory and the beauty of what he has done. And I want to just give you a little, little tidbit of, of how this is connected a little bit to our experience of depression. Isaiah chapter 53, right? We read the words that Jesus himself, the suffering servant, was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You say God is absent 
from me in this experience? Where is God in the midst of this? And then you come to a, 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 a chapter like this that you see that God himself, Jesus Christ himself, when he lived on this earth and then submitted himself to the cross, guess what? He's described as the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So all that you experience, all that you know and feel in the midst of that depressed state, Jesus has been there. Jesus has done that. He has walked down that road with you. And the most profound thing is this, is that his depression achieved, his, his grief, his sorrow achieved our redemption and salvation. That's, that's mind-boggling to the human mind. That it is central to the gospel to know that God came into the world, left glory, took on grief and sorrow so that he might redeem us and heal us from our grief and sorrows. So that he might be the source of exceeding joy. No other God has done that. <laughs> no other God has took on our grief and our sorrow and carried it in the way that Christ has. So when we say he's the source of exceeding joy, we can do so with great confidence because he has even taken on our grief and sorrow and entered into our experience. He sympathizes with your weakness here. He knows it. He's been there. And you could even read this psalm. It's not, it's not a messianic psalm per se, but you could read this psalm and see where a lot of these experiences point to the experiences of Jesus when he was on, the, on earth. He's been there. He's done that. And when he did that, he saved you. He did all that was necessary to achieve your joy in this life. So he is the good news that you need. It's really in the person of Jesus that you get God. That you get justice. That you get love. That you get uh, um, uh, um, truth. That you receive people, family. That you receive joy. So you have to receive that. You have to hear that. That Jesus has accomplished your salvation. You need to trust it. You allow it to be enough. Right? You, you, that's a building block. You can't move on with, with practical ideas and principles without that. You must have that as the bedrock, the foundation of all joy. Jesus took on your sorrow. He understands your experience. And his grief and his sorrow is the one that dealt with all your sin. That is really the source of all your pain sin in this world. So preach that to yourself. Don't just receive it, but preach it to yourself constantly. Immersing yourself in its promises. Uh, you need to talk to yourself. Someone said, well, that seems kind of odd. Not really. Right? D. D Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, if you want to buy a book, pick it up. Excellent read. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes in his, one of his opening chapters on spiritual depression, he says the problem that we have is that we let ourselves talk to us too much and we don't talk to ourselves. Listen to what he says. He says the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business 
have you to be disquieted. You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Simply put, don't let yourself talk to you. Talk to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Right? When false prophets, a.k.a. feelings, show up in your life, you say, "Uh uh-uh. Let me tell you something, self. I want you to listen to an excerpt from one of John Piper's sermons as he talks about this very thing. I thought I would try it, but I thought that would be silly. So let's just John Piper do it. Listen to what he says here in one of his sermons on spiritual depression in the Psalms about talking to yourself. So here we are on this side of the cross. Jesus has come. How would you preach to yourself now? You preach the gospel to yourself. It goes like this. Listen, self. This Piper. Listen. If God is for you, who can be against you, self? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you, self, will he not with him freely give us all things? Who should bring any charge against you, God's elect? It is God who justifies self. No, it's it's Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised. Who was at the right hand of God who intercedes for you, self. What can separate you, self, from the love of God? If there's ever a reason for memorizing Psalm 8, it's to turn it into self-preaching. To preach to yourself because those words are dynamite for deliverance from a hundred circumstances. So learn to preach to yourself yourself right seems weird but maybe you grab Romans 8 and you start doing that right you start yelling at yourself when the feelings of false prophets of condemnation of confusion of emptiness and feeling alone you can grab the Bible and you can open up Matthew 28 20 and you can say listen self Jesus said I will never leave you or forsake you Right? Surely to the end of the age, I am with you always. Hey, self, that's what Jesus said. Right? Some of us need to just take the Bible into our hands and, and look in the mirror and start telling ourselves the truth. Right? Send forth your light and your truth. Let them lead me. And then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy. Right? We need to take this discipline of preaching the gospel to ourselves. We need gospel-centered relationships. Isolation will breed depression. Right? And some of you fear community. Right? You have anxiety about being honest and authentic with other people. Right? But understand this, you'll never find joy on your own. Right? That God has designed a community of people known as the church to be here for you. And church, we need to take responsibility for people who genuinely struggle with this. We cannot relegate them simply to the medical field. 
We cannot say, that's not my problem, that's not my issue. We need to look at people who struggle with despondency and melancholy and depression, no matter what its form, and say, listen, let me be a voice of encouragement. Let me be the presence of God. Let me remind you of his promises. Let me share the gospel with you every single day if I must. Because no matter how deep it gets for people, no matter how dark it gets, we as the people of God can say there is always hope for you. We will never give up on you. We will always believe that the word of God will quicken within you the joy that it alone can give. People can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. So we need gospel-centered relationships. Isolation is poison. We need to pray. Right? He's pray- the psalmist is praying. Right? We have access to the Father. God, why are you rejecting me? Why have you forgotten me? He's not afraid to bring his request to God. I pray to the, my rock, the God of my life. Prayer is a battleground for joy. So seek the Lord in prayer. Walk with others who face depression and yet were transformed by the gospel. One famous author, Randy Alcorn, talks about his battle with depression. Again, another two-year season of unexplained despondency. You know how he made it through? Reading Spurgeon. The God, reading the Bible. But walking with Spurgeon through his darkness. And he made it through. We have a history in the church of people who have wrestled with these things. And they can walk with us. Read their books. Zach Eswine just came out with a book called Spurgeon's Sorrows. Pick it up. Walk with Spurgeon through this darkness. And God will be there. And last but not least, some of us need to humbly admit and submit ourselves to medical help. Right? We don't need to over-spiritualize this uh, uh, depression and say, oh, you're depressed because you don't have enough faith in Jesus. Get off those pills. Stop trusting in the medical profession. That's That's not the right response for us. You know, we can talk about all that all you want at another time. But as I understand it, much of these medicines and and these helps in the medical world are common graces for all humankind. And so there are some people here that genuinely need help. And if you need help, get help. And church, be the help, too, that they need. For it's not just medication that people need, although some people do. It's not just counselors that people need. Right? Sometimes, well, I would say this, people need brothers and sisters and pastors and elders and friends in the Lord to walk with them through this journey. But I'm telling you right now, we as a church do not believe in the silliness of just trust God and get rid of your doctors, okay? You need them. You need them. And God has put them in your life. Now, that's not to say that, you know, doctors don't make mistakes and there isn't some silliness out there. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying there are some of you here that the depression is that harsh and that bad and that uh, uh, just part of who you are and your DNA living on the other side or this side of glory where you simply need medical attention and we want to support you in that. Not put some stigma on it that it's a lack of faith. Someone say amen to that. Amen to that. Here's the point. I know I've gone long, whatever. Here's the point. There's always hope. 
There's always hope. Name the promises of God. Claim the promises of God. Yeah, you heard it. I said name it and claim it. I, I said it. Name it. Name it. Claim it. They're real. Here's my caveat. Wait. Wait. See, that's where the name it, claim it stuff misses the point. That's where we need to be persistent and patient. Name the promise. Claim the promise. And wait on God. For Psalms say that none who wait on the Lord shall be put to shame. And for some of us, we may be waiting decades before we understand the fullness of what it means for God to be our exceeding joy. But name the promise. He is. Claim the promise. God is my exceeding joy. Of everything I need. And wait. Because none who wait on the Lord shall be put to shame. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, who are we to discuss these things? There are real people, real struggles that we face in this world. Sin has just twisted and marred and distorted human experience. But we declare that the resurrection of Jesus is real and true and it affects every aspect of our lives. It gives us victory in the daily battle. The work of Christ, the grief and the sorrow of Christ is what has saved us from our sin and our sorrows. And I pray that every person here would see that you are their hope because you are their exceeding joy. God, give you praise for all that you are and all that you have done in Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.